Now we have been considering in the conference during these days the great theme of revival in its many glorious aspects. And this morning we conclude very appropriately, I think, and properly by turning our attention to what is the real end and outcome of all true revival in Scripture and in history, and indeed the end and outcome of every true work of grace. And that is the offering to God of the glory and honor and praise and worship which is his due. There is nothing beyond this for God's people. There is nothing that is more ultimate than this in our lives and in all our activity. It's one terminus in scripture and in the history of revival is the worship and honor and glory of God for this reason that the end of all things for God and for his people is his glory and his praise. This is what everything in the universe is moving towards. This is what the creation was brought into being to do. This is why you and I were redeemed in order that we might glorify and honor God. And it is therefore in worship that all true revival finds its proper terminus. We have been thinking in these days about the church in a moribund condition, in its deadness. We have been thinking about the church in a revived condition under the Spirit of God awakening it. But there is a third picture which the Scripture presents to us, and that is the picture of the church in a glorified condition in heaven. Now the constant activity of the church in glory is the worship and honor and praise of God as we read this morning in Revelation chapter 5. And whenever the church is revived and quickened here on earth, what happens is that there is an increasing approximation to the worship of the church in glory. As God revives and quickens and blesses his people, what happens in every situation is that he makes their worship something of a breath of heaven. And that is why you find people saying in days of revival, in days when we may even in our worship come to the edges of the ways of God's outpouring of his spirit, it was like a breath of heaven, we say. It was as though heaven came down to earth. And the reason is that when God comes to meet with people, worship becomes something that bears a heavenly quality in it. Let me give you two illustrations of this from history, one from Scotland and the other from America. Dr. DeWitt was speaking to us about the revival at Cambus Lang near Glasgow in 1742 under the ministry of the great and godly figure of William McCulloch an ordinary man upon whom God came in his special power. And he writes of these days of revival as they affected the worship of God's people. What was most remarkable, he says, was the spiritual glory of this solemnity. He is speaking of the presence of God amongst his people gathered together. I mean the gracious and sensible presence of God. 
Many of God's dear children declared that they were abundantly satisfied with the goodness of God in his ordinances and filled with joy and peace in believing. An extraordinary power of the divine spirit accompanied the word preached. And one of the observers of the revival, Ebenezer Erskine, speaks of the same revival vitalizing what he calls the carcass of worship. Then from Jonathan Edwards' writing of the revival in Northampton in New England here in America in 1734. The goings of God, he says, were then seen in his sanctuary. God's day was a delight and his tabernacles were amiable. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on public worship, every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Our public praises were then greatly enlivened. God was then served in our psalmody in some measure in the beauty of holiness. It has been observable that there has been scarce any part of divine worship wherein good men amongst us have had grace so drawn forth and their hearts so lifted up in the ways of God as in singing his praises. Now again and again in history you find precisely this same testimony being raised and the reason for this effect of revival on worship is a vital and important thing for us to consider. In the accounts of revivals of religion, you may have noticed if you have read at all of them that they are frequently described as days of visitation. That is, it is as though God was coming down to visit his people, the presence of God suddenly becoming a manifest and glorious reality which in normal occasions it was not. Not that God's presence is not here on normal occasions, but this is an overwhelming reality of God coming down into the midst of his people. In accordance with the plea of Isaiah 64, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Now you find this in the history of revival, both in scripture and in post-biblical history. Dr. DeWitt was speaking to us again about John Livingstone at Kirkoshots in Scotland between Glasgow and Edinburgh in the year 1630 when there was such a sense of God's presence that people were drawn to the place and multitudes were cast down before God and this young and experienced man preached with such a manifest evidence of the Spirit of God that the place was electrified, not by a man of some fame, but by the presence of God amongst his people. And Livingston writes of that day, it was the day in my life when I got most of the presence of God in public. During my own lifetime, there has been a real quickening and revival that took place in the late 1940s and early 50s in the island of Lewis in Scotland. 
And there people didn't ever speak about the revival appearing or a preacher coming to a particular area of the island of Lewis. The form in which they spoke was this. They would say, did you know that God has come to Barbas? Have you heard that God is in Ness? Now what these people meant was not that they were ill-instructed about God being omnipresent in his universe. What they were saying was, God has come down in quickening power amongst his people. And many of these people have said to me, personally, it was a dreadful thing to be in the presence of God like that. But when God came, sometimes physically, always in a spiritual sense, the people were prostrated before him. Now the point about that is the true revival is the manifestation of God in all his awesome glory. And the outcome of it is true God-centered worship with a God-consciousness amongst God's people. They found themselves saying like Jacob, Surely the Lord is in this place. Surely the Lord is in this place. Now as we think of this subject this morning in this concluding address of the conference as well as our morning worship service, it's important for us, I think, to turn not so much to history as to Scripture. And I want to turn with you to one part of Jesus' teaching on worship in John chapter 4, the story of Jesus' conversation with the woman at Sychar in Samaria. Subsequently, you will remember that that chapter tells us of something of an awakening which took place in Samaria as multitudes of people came over the fields and Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are quite all ready to harvest. It was the people coming in droves to Jesus, you see. And there was something of a spirit of awakening there. Now that passage deals, of course, with the seeking Savior coming to this poor, needy woman who represents most probably a whole religious world that was spiritually dead and desperately needy. And behind the seeking Savior, there is a seeking Father of whom Jesus speaks to the woman, the Father seeketh such, he says. Now what is the Father seeking? Says Jesus, the Father seeketh such to worship him. And what God the Father is seeking as he sends his Son into the world, and what the Son is seeking as he seeks to save the lost, is worshippers. The Father seeketh such to worship him. And so Jesus speaks to this woman and to us, please God, this morning about worship. It's often been suggested that in John 4.20, when the woman turns Jesus away to another subject and says, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship, that she was going off at a tangent trying to avoid Jesus probing into her personal poverty-stricken life. And of course, he was doing that, and she was wanting to get away from it. I have no doubt about that at all. But the subject of worship was not the diversion, or else Jesus would not have elaborated on it as he did. What she was wanting to do was to turn the gaze of Jesus away from the inner truth about her heart and life and his probing of her conscience 
and his working towards bringing her to repentance. The woman wanted to shrink away from that. But in speaking about worship, perhaps unconsciously, she had touched on the central reality. And Jesus, in the context of the work of grace which was taking place in this woman's life so gloriously, worship was indeed the end and aim of everything. The Father who is seeking you, he said to her, the Father who is seeking you, my dear, he is seeking worshippers. That's what Jesus is saying. Worship is the end of everything. But you will notice that from this passage, God is not indifferent to whether we worship. This is what the Father is seeking. He has made and redeemed us for this. Nor is he indifferent to whom we worship. They who worship God the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. It is the Father we are to worship. They who worship him, God is not indifferent to whom we worship. And indeed, the ultimate distortion that sin creates in the world is precisely here. Have you ever stopped to think about that? The ultimate distortion of sin is not the way it spoils our lives and messes up the lives of other people. The ultimate distortion of sin is this. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So God is not indifferent as to whom we worship. But you will notice that God is not indifferent either as to how we worship. And in verse 24 of John 4, that is his theme. God is a spirit, and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, in the context of our thinking about revival, it is on this last issue that I want us to concentrate particularly this morning. The woman's question leads us right into the central issue. In verse 19, she says, I perceive you are a prophet, sir. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, that is the mountain of Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But you see what the woman is asking. Which is right, she says. Perhaps she's posing a kind of ecclesiastical question. She says, which is right, Gerizim worship, where the Samaritans worship, or Jerusalem worship? Now, what was the mark of Gerizim worship? Well, it was very sincere, and so far as we are able to tell, it was very enthusiastic. The Samaritans worshipped with great sincerity on Gerizim, even after their temple was destroyed. But it was worship which was devoid of truth. Since they rejected, as the Samaritans did reject, the greater part of the Old Testament, they worshipped in unbiblical ignorance. 
They instituted their own priesthood, their own scriptures, their own method of worship, and so on. And what happened in Samaritan worship is that these people devised worship that was pleasing to them. They were concerned not about how God had revealed that he should be worshipped. They worshipped sincerely, enthusiastically, but in ignorance and without truth. Now what was the mark of Jerusalem worship? It was perhaps precisely the opposite. It was worship in the letter. Worship without the spirit. So Jesus quotes Isaiah to the Pharisees regarding this kind of Jerusalem worship. This people worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That was Jerusalem worship. It was orthodox worship. It was worship that was correct in every detail. But their heart was divorced from it. Now there never was a divorce that is more disastrous than that. And there never was a place to make it that is more disastrous than in worship. The divorce of the lips from the heart. You know how we find it. Distressing ourselves, even in personal relationships. If you're not sure that somebody is real, if you're not sure that somebody's heart is in what they're saying, if you believe that somehow or other they're putting on a face or a facade to you, it is a distressing and disturbing thing and an insult to you. They are not coming clean or being real, as we say. Now, my dear friends, there is no place where that spirit is more appalling than in the place of worship. And this is why God says to Israel when they are engaging in this worship, I am tired of your burnt offerings. I hate your sacrifices. Why is this? It is because worship of the lips and the hands and the body divorced from the heart, being right with God, is not just unacceptable to him, it is obnoxious to him. That was Jerusalem worship. Now let me ask you a question. What are the two great enemies of true worship throughout history? Are they not the errors of Gerizim and Jerusalem? Zeal without knowledge, or knowledge without zeal. Truth without spirit, or spirit somehow divorced from truth. And in verses 23 and 24, what Jesus is saying is two things chiefly about acceptable worship. One, true acceptable worship is rational worship. It engages and involves the mind. Secondly, true acceptable worship is spiritual worship. It engages and involves the heart. Now let me emphasize to you that this whole question of acceptable worship the evidence that we have from revival of the kind of worship that is created when God comes down in grace and power upon a people. The issue is not what is acceptable to us. It is what is acceptable to God. That is what matters. And this is why rational worship is so vital. Let me expand a little on each of these two matters. True worship is rational. It engages and involves the mind. Another way of saying that is simply to say that worship is a conscious activity. 
Now, all of our activities are not conscious activities. There are many activities in which we are engaging just now which are not conscious activities. For example, all of us here this morning are breathing, I hope. But breathing is not a conscious activity, you see. You sit and breathe, but you don't say to yourself, well, now, I will need to inhale. And for a certain number of seconds, I'll need to retain the air that I have inhaled, and now I am about to exhale. It's not a conscious activity, but it is something that we engage in all the time, if we are wise. But acceptable worship engages the mind in the sense that our minds are to be occupied in worship with the glories of God's character and nature, the wonder of his works in the world, the amazing grace that he has shown in Jesus Christ, all that he has wrought for men in what he has done for them in history and in scripture. Our minds are to be engaged with God. And that is a conscious activity. The reason for this, of course, is that the God we worship is a rational God who has made us his rational creatures and he has revealed himself in his word so that by engaging our minds we may come to know God and to worship him. Now that is why God has revealed himself. He has revealed himself in order that we might know him. And he has revealed himself in order that knowing him, we might worship and adore him. And it is through the vehicle of redeemed, enlightened minds that we are enabled to worship God. Now that is why the preaching of the word of God is so vital in worship. That is why the reading of Holy Scripture is so vital in worship. And you will notice the reason that Jesus gives when he says to the woman of Samaria, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We know what we worship in verse 22. Now the reason is salvation is of the Jews. Now that's not an exclusiveness of racial prejudice that Jesus is exercising. He is not saying you aren't allowed into this. It's only Jews who are allowed to worship God because salvation is of the Jews. What Jesus is saying is, God is a spirit, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Therefore you must know God in order to be able to worship him. And God has revealed himself. How has he revealed himself? He has revealed himself in the revelation he has given in scripture concerning his people. Salvation is of the Jews. And it is out of the Holy Scripture as it reveals the salvation brought to us through God's chosen people, that we are enabled to know him. So the revelation of God in Scripture and the worship of God by his people are inextricably bound together. Now let me say to you that that is why it's such a foolish thing for people to say the kind of thing that I frequently hear people saying. I hope you don't say it in Philadelphia. But I hear people saying, oh, now I don't go to church to hear a man preaching. I go to worship God. Now that sounds very superior, you know, and very spiritual. I go to worship God. I don't go to hear a man preaching. So it doesn't matter what kind of preaching I hear. I am not interested in going to hear a particular kind of preaching or a particular kind of man. I go to worship God. 
Now that sounds very superior, as I say, but it betrays a profound misunderstanding both of preaching and of worship. True preaching, you see, is not a display of human ability or gift or learning. True preaching is not the display of a man at all. It is the exposition of what God has revealed of himself in Holy Scripture, as Dr. DeWitt was telling us the other day as he spoke to us about preaching and revival. True preaching is the exposition of Holy Scripture behind which a man stands so that God may be seen in his infinite glory through his word. Now, when you come under the ministry of God's word like that, what should be in our minds when we go out is not what a wonderful man That is the failure, it is the ultimate failure of preaching when people go away and say, what a great guy he was. What they ought to go away saying is, what a glorious God this is who has revealed himself to us in his word. I thank God that he has come upon his servant to enable me to see the glory and grace of my God, the marvel of his ways, the wonder of his works, the beauty of the Lord Jesus, and my whole soul goes out after him runs towards him to worship him. That is what the preaching of the word of God does for our souls when the Spirit of God is upon it. And true worship, you see, results from learning these things about God. True worship means that we come to know God in his word, And because of what we have come to know of him, we cast ourselves down before him. You will notice in the book of Revelation, this is precisely what has happened in these chapters that we read. They are absorbed with the glories of the Lamb. Worthy art thou who hast been slain, and by thy blood didst ransom men for God. And every tribe and tongue and nation comes to say this. What has happened to them? Well, they have discovered something of the infinite glories of their Redeemer. And they are bowed before him. And it is the ministry of God's word that does that, you see. This is why the revival of biblical preaching and days of spiritual awakening brings with it a revival in biblical worship. And the two cannot be divorced from each other. Let me just apply this practically a little, if I may. If we are going to worship God in truth, then you need to concentrate your mind. Do you notice this upon God? I think that involves that you do not come into the presence of God half asleep. Now, there has been the charge on occasion that the minister has sent people half asleep. But you see, what I'm talking about now is something rather different from that. What I'm talking about is living in such a way on a Saturday night that when you come to church on the Lord's Day morning, you're half asleep and unable to concentrate. Now, my dear friends, you cannot worship God like that if your mind is not going to be able to concentrate on the glories and grace of God, then you are not going to be able to worship Him. 
And I think the way we spend Saturday evening and the time we go to bed on Saturday evening sometimes speaks a great deal of how much I am concerned with the worship of God on the Lord's day. I wonder if you share that feeling with me. It also will mean that we will not come rushed into the presence of God, breathlessly sitting down, you know, and then suddenly taking up the hymn book. My goodness me, I don't know how I got here in time for 11 o'clock, but here we are, and then we are breathlessly going into the presence of God. Because you see, when you sing hymns, your mind ought to be in some of these glorious things that we have been singing this morning. Your mind ought to be focusing upon the truth of God in these hymns. Oh, how enlarging to the soul, how expanding to the spirit some of these great hymns of the faith are. And you notice that so many of them came out of revivals. Have you noticed that? So many of these hymns came out of days of revival. And that enables us to worship, but you don't do that if you are not concentrating on them. Hymn singing is not an opportunity for us to take the book in our hands and then to look around the congregation and say, Oh, who is here this morning now? Oh, here we are. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Oh, and there is so-and-so. Oh, yes, and so-and-so is here. Oh, my friends, we laugh at ourselves. Because, you see, that is one of the ways in which we are denying God the worship and honor that is his due. In days of revival, you would never find people able to be distracted in that way from God. Our concentration needs to be given to prayer, whoever is leading it to the preaching of the word, but chiefly to God himself, because true worship is rational. It involves and engages the mind. May I say to you, secondly, that true worship is spiritual. It engages the heart. Now, what does it mean to worship God in spirit? Let me clarify just for a moment what Jesus means. You will notice that the word spirit God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit has a small s. And Jesus is really speaking about worship which is inward and spiritual, as distinct from being merely outward and physical. The woman thought that true worship depended on the right environment or the right place or the right form. Is it here or is it in Jerusalem? And Jesus is emphasizing that true worship really depends on a heart which is right with God. Being in the Spirit. We worship God primarily in the Spirit and with the Spirit because He is Spirit. So John the Apostle says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now that's not primarily an emotional state, although it will surely affect our emotions. But there are some emotional states in worship which are really centered again on what this does for me rather than what it does for God. But the center and focus of worship is God, not ourselves. People often say these days, I find it especially in student circles, they will say now, for this particular occasion, we want to have a meaningful worship experience. I'm Never quite sure what they're thinking about, but I do know that what they mean is that it has got to do something for people. Somebody said to me, 
I like the kind of worship that turns me on. Turns me on. Do you know the problem is that it's very easy for us in worship to make ourselves and our satisfaction the end of our worship instead of God and his pleasure. Whose pleasure is it that I am concerned with as I come to worship? Who is it that I am wanting to give to? Is it myself or God? Let me read to you some words of Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, a great and godly man who wrote on worship. He says, when we believe that we should be satisfied rather than God glorified, we put God below ourselves as though he had been made for us rather than we for him. Now, worshipping in the spirit means that our spirits are engaged in seeking and meeting with God. We are taken up with who he is and what he has done with the glories of our redemption. This is what worship is concerned with. Worthy, they say, in heaven. And the word really speaks of the worth of God. He is worthy. He alone is worthy to be honored and praised and magnified and adored. And he is the end and aim of spiritual worship. But let me be more specific before we conclude. And break this down a little. To worship in the spirit as well as in truth. I think there are three things that are necessary. One, you must be spiritually alive. By that I mean that your spirit will never be drawn out after God and your heart will never leap up to him in worship if you are not spiritually alive. That is, if you are not spiritually regenerate. If the Spirit of God has never come to resurrect you out of spiritual death into spiritual life, then, my dear friends, worship is not going to mean anything. And this is why worship is so dead for so many people, generally speaking. There may be other reasons. But for so many people, the reason that worship is dead is that they are spiritually dead. Now we touch on a very solemn area. In my own denomination in Scotland, there has been a great deal of thought about worship in recent times. They have been concerned because people have been distressed. Worship is not attracting people. People are not coming. They say how boring the whole thing is. How dead the whole business is. And so they have formed councils and committees and conferences. And they have gathered books on worship from all over the world and every kind of tradition. They say let's try some new things. More color, more movement, dance, whatever. But you see, people who are spiritually dead can only engage in dead worship. And the first necessity if you are going to worship God in the Spirit is that you must know what it is to have spiritual life. That is why Jesus is offering this, this dear woman living water. Oh, he said, if you knew who was talking to you, my dear. If you knew who was talking to you, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water springing up within you to eternal life. No, my friends, that's what we need primarily. I dare not assume that there are not some here this morning whose primary need is that. Do you find yourself observing all this from the outside, detached somehow or other, when people speak about their souls drawn out after the glories of the Lord Jesus? Do you find that you are detached from it in some sense? Oh, I say to you, it's the living water you may be needing. 
It is the Lord Jesus in all his glory as the life giver that you may be needing because you need to be spiritually alive before you can offer spiritual worship. Here's the second thing. You must be spiritually assisted. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. And nowhere is that more applicable than in this realm of worship. To worship in spirit is to know the gracious assistance of the Holy Spirit, quickening our spirit to desire God and to be zealous for him. This is what the psalmist means in Psalm 80 and verse 18 when he says, Quicken thou us. That is a cry for revival, you see. Quicken thou us, and we will call on thy name. That is the evidence of being spiritually assisted. And this is why the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace and Supplication in Zechariah 12.10. This is why being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 is linked with singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Now here is the third thing. You must be spiritually alive. You must be spiritually assisted. You must be spiritually active. That is, you cannot worship God casually or carelessly or along with several other things. You can't really. When you, I mean when God's people are gathered together like this. When you are worshipping God, there is no casualness in it. There is no division of our attention. You can't do a whole lot of other things and worship God too. You can't be absorbed with other considerations and worship God. I remember going into a church in Scotland some years ago. And people were gathered together to worship. And there were people sitting down there. Some ladies sitting down just about the third row. I will never forget it. And they were knitting. In the middle of worship. They were knitting. Now you see what that was saying. They weren't saying a word. They weren't disturbing. They weren't coming. These people I'm sure to be distracting. They didn't mean to be insulting or or anything like that to God. What they meant was this is an occasion when you can do a lot of other things. You can be absorbed with various things. You can knit away and uh, now and again add your mind or your spirit to what is happening. But it's not a vital thing. But my dear friends, what we need to say when we come in to worship God is to get hold of our whole soul as the psalmist does in Psalm 103. And to say, bless the Lord, O my soul. We are spiritually active, you see. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Everything, my affections, my emotions, my will, my moral being, my mind, my spirit, my very body is to be engaged in this. All that is within me for God. Now you see we demonstrate when we worship really how we live. Because if, if I knit or whatever your particular knit is, if you do that and worship God, you are saying... He belongs there, you see. That's where God belongs, on the borders of life. And my worship declares that. The pattern of worship in heaven is that they never cease. Day or night, 
But they say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. This is their whole being, you see, being put into the worship. I think this comes into every area of our life, into our singing too. I think what makes the real difference in singing, may I say how greatly I enjoy and value the music here in Philadelphia when I have come. It has been a benison to my own soul and I have thanked God for it again and again. And it helps us in our spirits to worship God. But the real thing that makes the difference is the spirit of the worshippers. Who, and it's interesting that the scripture says, with a loud voice. Now that is not because they want to be heard themselves. It is because their whole being is going into this. What makes the difference is that God himself is at the center of everything. Somebody sent to me in Lewis man I know well who was one of the first people to be converted in the village of Barvas in Lewis and who later became a minister in Scotland. He said to me the difference in days of revival was this, that God came down and for these days God was at the center of everything. That is it. God at the center of everything. And then his people are cast down before him as his glories are displayed. And they say, worthy art thou to receive honor and wisdom and might and wealth and dominion and Praise, and their whole being centers on God. May God, in his great grace, prepare us for heaven. Let us pray. We bow quietly in your presence, eternal and all-glorious God. Your greatness awes us, and we marvel that sinners may come to you through our mediator, even Jesus the Lamb who was slain. But your grace and love awe us even more. And we bow down lost in wonder, love and praise. And with all our being, we adore you. Oh, come and quicken us. That we may call upon your name. Through Christ our Redeemer, 